Welcome back to this week's episode of the Bulletproof Dad podcast. Today's guest is Daniel Davey, performance nutritionist. Daniel speaks about his time working with Leinster Rugby and Dublin GAA and the huge success he had with both teams, winning numerous medals and honours. Then taking the big step to go out on his own and leave his so-called dream jobs to go and pursue his entrepreneurial passion and set up his own nutrition company. We talk about entrepreneurship, we talk about fatherhood, we talk about sport. It's a really good listen. If you've an interest in any of those areas, pop the headphones in and enjoy. The Bulletproof Dad podcast is sponsored by M50 Skip Hire. They're a local business that specializes in skip hire, but also commercial bins. So if you're involved in a small Irish business, practice to preach, look out for the small Irish businesses and get them to do your bins. So Daniel Davey, you're very welcome to the Bulletproof Dad podcast. How are you, sir? I'm very, very well. Daniel, I'm very excited to have you on here today uh, for numerous reasons, but to get started, will you just do me a favor and in case, just in case someone mm. listening to this doesn't exactly know who you are, could you just explain a little bit about yourself and your background and work you do? Yeah, maybe I'll start off with the, the part that people don't know. I am a sheep farmer <laughs> from Sligo and that's true. It's true. It's true. And I'm holding on strong to that. My mother is looking after the farm at home in Sligo at the moment and we have two lambs, two early lambs that were surprises. Uh, I grew up in Sligo, small, small rural community. And I suppose the biggest thing growing up was I'm on a, I'm on a farm um, my grandparents are are growing their food in their in their garden. Uh, my granddads are milking their cows. My granny milking cows by hand. And the biggest thing in my life was was football, football and farming. And uh, very quickly, I suppose, I I realized the value of food and health and food and performance. And all I ever wanted to do was to play football and to find out ways to impact performance. Okay. That's kind of the 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 roots of of my my interest uh, and it kind of went from there. So with improving performance naturally you'll go to training and skill based stuff on the pitch and maybe you do a bit of gym work. When did you realize that nutrition could play a big role in this? At about the age of 7. Okay. Can I'm you not remember? joking. Yeah, I can. Okay. I actually can. Uh there was a moment in my my nanny's kitchen where uh, there was a, a local footballer who was bigger and stronger and more athletic than everybody else. And he was like, everybody talked about Sean. And I I just, I looked at Sean. It was Sean Davey and there was Eamon O'Hara. They were the two superstars. And I remember asking my nanny if she would ask his mum, what did he eat? Right. Because I wanted to understand like that, that approach that he was taking, I was going to do it. And uh, again, it was very fortunate. For some reason, it was just a part of our conversations at home. And it was a part of those initial understanding that things like eggs and milk and homemade bread and your bacon and cabbage played a vital role in being strong. And I think my granddad, uh, I don't know if I actually connected this part before, but this, now that I even think about it, my granddad was an extremely strong man. So there's loads of stories about my, my dad's or, you know, uh, neighbors would say, you know, you need to get a digger to dig that line for the, for the pipes. Yeah. And he would get a spade right. and he would dig. Fucking, yeah. This, get, this is your grandfather. My now, granddad. Yeah. yeah. Sonny Davy. 
And there was always that thing about how much turf you could bring in and, uh, you know, how much work you could get done. And very quickly, you know, breakfast and lunch and dinner, or dinner was the middle of the day, those those type of things were very important to be able to do the work that you needed to do. Yeah, yeah. So from there, uh, I, I suppose, again, the other thing that happened was in school, my dad worked in the local dairy. And when I was in school, in all summers, uh, I was exposed to the production of dairy, uh, milk to butter, milk to cheese, uh, and that kind of connection between milk being produced locally on farms, then then it being processed into foods. And I started to see those all of those types of, of, of connections. And my dad was a fascinating man from the point of view that he was interested in, in farming. He was interested in health. He was interested in creativity in a lot of ways. So we're going back to the very, very early stages. But then it was like all I wanted to do was play football and play football really well. And from a very young age, now that I, you know, now that I think back of it, about it, I was running the roads and I was playing a lot of sport, like a lot of young people do. And uh, food was on my radar. From seven years old, like that is quite unique to, to have it at like seven years old. You're thinking about your next packet of crisps or your, <laughs> your next fizzy drink or whatever for most people. Yeah. And uh, my mother tells a story about me uh, sitting on a stool out the back of the house at four peeling potatoes. Right, yeah. Um, so... I just know it. It it's not. It's now that you look back and you think it's a little bit unusual because of how different the world feels and looks now. Mm. But back then, you were we're talking about thirty thirty six years ago. Mm. There was still at this point, at that point in life, like food. There was a you. You didn't take it for granted. Yeah, I can somewhat relate. My father is actually from a small town in Tipperary. And they would have lived on a farm, but my, my my grandfather was actually a builder. They had kind of like they would have had land around that they leased out. So I remember going down as a child myself, and like for from a young lad growing up in the housing estate in North County Dublin, this was a complete culture change. But I was very aware of it, and like that, it, it's, it's just, I suppose being exposed to nature, and it definitely does nurture you in certain ways. You go down a lot, whether it was holidays, school holidays, whatever. So I, I just imagine from a younger age being immersed in that the whole time. It absolutely would have to to have an impact on you and influence mm. you. And uh, I, I like often I'll talk with lads here and they'll go back to their childhood and sometimes they're nearly apologetic about talking back mm. because they think people are only interested in now in the current. But it's so important because that's what definitely mm. shapes us as we go forward. You know, it plays such a vital role. So from there, then where would you have gone? So obviously, like you've you've been surrounded by that growing up. When did it become clear to you that actually not just from a sports performance point, point of view, but potentially as a career path here that you could actually pursue something like this? Well, I suppose there's a there's a fork in the road for everybody, and it, you talk about your formative years. Well, school was m- incredibly challenging for me, and uh, I just didn't fit into the bracket of being academic, or I certainly didn't think about myself like that. And I think that has to be put into the conversation because when you're thinking about your career, ultimately it will de- be defined by how many points you get in your leave insert. I just did not think I had the capability of getting points that would allow me to do the things that I was really interested in, which was either medicine or veterinary. Like that, they were the two things. I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the belief. I didn't think I had the capability. So stepping back from that, there was a course called Agricultural Science uh, that quite a number of people in even our my family's network would have done, which was a you know it was a it was a really good next option. 
I didn't know where that was going to lead, but agriculture was something that I was interested in doing. But I remember going into that course and I like, it was a massive moment because not only was I engaged in the topics, but the people, I mean, they were just incredible uh, from the point of view that there was a like-minded attitude towards fun, agriculture, food, but it was more than that. It was, they knew how to have fun as a, you know, just there was this sense of wanting to achieve great things and everybody was ambitious, but there was a way that people went about it um, that was very supportive and inclusive. Mm. And I found school exclusive. Yeah, it's the complete opposite. It's the complete Where did opposite. you study? Where did you go to study? UCD. I actually went down myself. Oh, brilliant. And I found the same. It's kind of a weird thing that cultural shift from going from school into college where everyone's kind of nice and open-minded and well-greeting. It's, 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 it takes a very long time to get used. I don't know whether I ever really got my head around it. Mm. And I know where you're coming from there. You obviously, so come from Sligo, you obviously moved up and stayed up in UCD. I was, I, I used to commute up and down. It was like an hour and a half every day. So I never fully got the experience. But with yourself, like you were probably immersed in it. How many years were you there then? Uh, four. And... So you, you seen out the degree, you got the degree, did you? I got the degree and like I got a lot of help even from my from my classmates. Uh, I, that was the big thing, I guess. When you were uh, when you were in secondary school, you were either in the smart group or you were in the group yeah. that just played football. Yeah. Um, and Luckily you had the football. Yeah, I was the same. Yeah. Look, when you're good at sport, it helps a lot in school. It definitely helps. Yeah. So school was challenging college opened up my brain to a whole new set of possibilities and that's when things got really uh, exciting for me and I felt like there was something in this and it was it was as much about belief as anything else I started to believe that this was a a, a, a direction that, that I could do well in uh, and then there were subjects in there that were really specific about nutrition and my best friend Brendan Egan was over in Loughborough doing sports nutrition and I decided to go whatever direction, What I, I decided to do whatever I could in, in UCD, in college. I ended up taking four extra modules uh, just to put myself in a position to do a master's when I got out of that course. Um, and that's what I did. And I, I, I got my degree and then I went on to, to study nutrition in, in Bristol University. Okay, how long did you go over there for? Uh, that was just over a year. Cool, yeah. So like, again, mm. you traveled abroad. This was, you were on it, going to go and get that. Mm. Now, you came straight back to Ireland after you got the degree, did you? Mm, well, not straight away, but yeah, I did a little bit of traveling. That's my only, I actually, it's, this is much more personal, which is my only little regret was that I, I didn't see more of the world. Uh, I, I had always intended to live and work abroad, but uh, I spent a bit of time in the UK and, and loved it. I played football over there for London. Uh, for a year and uh, uh, played club football and yeah, I loved my experience over there. Yeah, that's, uh, a good few of my classmates lived in London for a few years and used to love going over. Just it's a mm. different vibe completely. It's it's a really cool spot. When you move back to Ireland then, like I'm conscious there, there wouldn't be many, I suppose, job opportunities in the world of nutrition, especially like how many years ago are we talking here? <laughs> yeah, it was 2008. All right, okay. So yeah, so again, there's probably like, especially in sport as well, there's minimal jobs and mm. they tend to go to people who are maybe ex-players or ex, you know, like it, it's a quite a small circle. When you came back and you tried then to look for work, what was your kind of natural pathway to, to get in to try and hack a career in nutrition? 
particularly performance nutrition and sport? Yeah, I talk about this uh, part of my life a lot, particularly f- the young people who might reach out and are interested in a career in, in sport or career in nutrition because there were no opportunities and I was incredibly disillusioned. Uh, so what did I do? Uh, I had some contacts still in UCD in the High Performance Centre and I went in there and I asked, could I could I do an internship or get some work experience? And the answer really was not really. Uh, they weren't going to bring, even though I had my master's done, uh, they didn't really feel they had enough confidence in in where I was at to give me the the, the scope to to go and work with athletes. That you know the, the the stakes were a bit too high, so I stayed in there just to be doing something um, while uh, working in marketing jobs. So when I say marketing jobs, I mean, I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning to hand out fruit juice on Leeson street bridge in overalls, you know, okay. and wearing hats, daft hats, just to draw attention to, to what, it, you know, to what you're trying to, to give out. And, uh, then I went on at the same time I was doing a, a course in exercise and health studies. And I did something called the, uh, certified strength conditioning, um, qualification because, there were no jobs mm. and there was no opportunities. At that time, there were, I think, three performance nutrition positions in the country. Okay, yeah. That was it. For perspective, like, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was it. So you got the Irish rugby team, you've got the Irish Institute of Sport, and there was one in Leinster. Okay. And I remember thinking about Tuzema McCrudden that was in, uh, in Leinster at the time. And... Uh, I was just like, that is, that is the dream. Mm. But there was, there was very, very, everything else was part-time. So I did whatever I possibly could for a while. Just had conversations with people in the space, uh, did loads of free nutrition work. I mean, going into schools and just speaking to, to friends and, and, and colleagues about nutrition for a long time. And then a job came up in, <laughs> another marketing job came up. But eventually the kind of, when things started to change when I got a, a role with a, a supplement business and I thought, I actually had no other option. Mm. Um, this was not like this exciting opportunity for me. This was, this was like at a point where I had to pay rent in Dublin and it was that or I, I actually, there was no alternative. So I spent three years helping to build a performance nutrition brand and that turned out to be the most valuable experience in my life um, for so many reasons because it was this, it's to the start of a concept and all I was all I had was a, a computer in front of me and it was everything from writing the labels formulating the products looking at the the size of the tubs other brands you know you were doing everything from product development to execution to then you had to actually sell the product. Yeah, that's a brilliant experience. Like, yeah. Absolutely incredible. And at the time, I, like, I thought that it was the greatest punishment. And I also thought I was going to be tarnished in the industry. I'd never get a job in sport. But when, you know, as time went on, I realized the, the access that I had to that industry allowed me to communicate with athletes on a whole different level. Yeah. How so? To this day, and probably forevermore, Athletes are, will just inherently think that nutrition is about what supplement can be taken. I, I mean, at a very superficial level, but it just comes up so often uh, because there's so much marketing, there's so much conversation in the space of sports performance about supplementation that people really don't know 
where it fits properly. Mm. And I was able to talk about specific quantities, like you could talk to me about carnosine, beta alanine, caffeine, nitrates. It, it, like it did not matter. I was able to access the research in my brain because I had spent two years researching this. I knew to the, you know, how much of a potential benefit these products could have or or didn't have. Mm. And what it allowed me to do was put a lot of nonsense to bed early on. Yeah, which is huge. Which in is that space. huge yeah. in that space. Yeah. Rather than the conventional approaches of forget about it. And normally what is 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 stated is that tested, you know, oh, is it WADA approved? Like, that's the greatest look. Like that is irrelevant. You know, that's it's sorry, let me rephrase. It is absolutely relevant. It's just that if you're having a conversation about its value, an athlete is not going to value that part of the conversation. Yeah, okay, yeah. They want to know, is it effective? What will it do for me? What will it do for me? And if you can break it down and say, it will take four weeks to load in your system to allow you to actually feel the benefits of it in training. And you're probably talking about another four weeks of intensive training where you're starting to see the benefits of taking it alongside how well you're sleeping how specific your training is, how well you're meeting all of your other nutrition and nutrition demands. An athlete starts to go, okay, now I get it. Mm. Now I realize why you have to have all of these other elements in place before we consider that. If you just dismiss it, then an athlete is going to be more interested in it. Mm. Okay, yeah. Um, we might get into that in a little bit more, the other pillars you're talking about there, because it, it's it said supplementation is just one small piece. Obviously, it's a sexy piece, if you like, of nutrition, but I'd be keen to talk about how you've probably developed and what you've learned over the years. Mm. I'm just conscious, before we pull away from this, we're talking, how long are we talking here? Because like it's there's not many industries where you go and you do a four-year degree, then you go and do a year's master's, and there's absolutely nothing there waiting for you. Most people from a year's master's tend to go into salary jobs that are probably like middle income jobs starting at 40, 50, 60 grand, maybe beyond, depending on the industry. Whereas like in what we are established here, that's far from it with this industry. Like how many years were you dressed up as the fruit juice man selling the fruit and like kind of doing the free work before? Because I think this is important to be a lot of people listening to this podcast. Maybe they're, they're a bit older, but they have kids who are trying to, they're telling their kids to follow a passion. And I think it's important people here if you want to follow your passion, great, but just be prepared to do a lot of mm. uh, work that you're not necessarily passionate about to get there first. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was, let me see, nearly two years. It was a year and a half, nearly two years of uh, doing lots of different types of odd jobs. And then uh, I went into that that brand. Uh, the brand was ROS Nutrition for three and a half years. So I suppose by the, you know, when I started college to when I started in an actual job that's a performance nutritionist is 10 years. Yeah, like that's a long journey. It know? is a yeah. long journey. It is a long journey. And if I'm being uh, quite honest about it, it was all about timing as well because it could have been another three years if that position had been taken within Leinster. Mm. So as it, it was just purely, I was in the right mindset. I had enough experience I was able to execute under pressure when I was asked about how I was going to add value to Dublin and Leinster. When those questions were asked, I wasn't ready before then. That's the bottom line. Mm. And this is the next really important point. It took me a long time to really sharpen my skills to the point where I could be very effective in those environments too. 
Okay. You know, it's not just getting in there. Mm. It's actually understanding the demands physically and mental, mentally that those athletes and those those athletes are in and um and what that feels like day to day and week to week. And that that takes the time and not everybody is able for the pressure of that. So there's two different things here. There's actually, do you want to work in the space, but are you also cut out to work in it? And I'm not, that's not, that's not about me being great. That's not, that's just an actual reality of it. Because when I got into Leinster, I was in on a 20 hour contract doing. Was this the first, did you get the Leinster role before the Dublin role? Did that no, come first? sorry. Dublin first, six weeks later, I got the Leinster okay, job. Okay, well, and they yeah. were both, I suppose, part-time roles that you were able to Both part-time get. roles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Obviously, both what at the very least you call as a high performance or high demand um, environment. When you got in there in the initial stage, obviously because you're probably you're you're in the learning phase there for both straight away. Was there much of a difference between the two? Like obviously, the the obvious one would be the IRFU essentially or Leinster Ruby is professional, whereas like I know Dublin, it's as close to professionals probably can be in an amateur point. But like, was there major differences between both, or was again was it an, an athlete by athlete approach and it didn't matter too much? Yeah, they're both athlete by athlete approaches. And I think this is the thing that I pride myself on. Everybody is on a separate, you know, everybody's in a different journey and in a different path. And it's about identifying what are the barriers for people and what are the priorities for people. But they're, they are so different culturally. They're so different because there's money involved. They're so different because amateur athletes and GA athletes are there for very much it's their commitment it's what they've uh that's what they've done it's it's there's a love of of the game whereas in professional sport they're just the, the stakes are so high day to day mm. week to week there's there isn't like there has to be phases of it built in to have downtime because the pressure is so high it's actually really only since i left uh you know 18 months ago or whatever whenever I don't know exactly how many months it is now but you know since I left that I realized just how much it's in your system mm. it never leaves your system mm. you're even if you're on a, a holiday or you're on a break you're still thinking about the the, yeah. the demands of that job yeah. and if you're not you're not doing your job as well as you can that's the bottom line yeah it's um did you find it with both entities or was it more so just because of the professional element of the rugby side of things? Did that just add the whole edit? Like, I don't think it's just about it being like Dublin and, and Leinster are, are very like, they're so similar in ethos and so similar in demand for the highest standards in the world and the way they approach their, their training, their preparation. Mm. I can't emphasize that enough, but it, when you're being paid uh, to do a job to ensure that the athletes are put in a position consistently, you know, week after week, month on month, year on year, to win back-to-back -back titles, there's just an extra layer to it. Um, that's It's almost hard to, to define unless you've been in that okay. environment. But... It's also a drug, like it's also incredibly addictive and you're also, you're just so driven to try and find ways for you to add value all the time. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't, like they're both absolute dream jobs. Yeah, and like within the environment, so, because I know, as you said, it is a harder thing to articulate. 
when you say you add value, the actual, just to get an idea of the work that you do, are you just responsible for the, the, the senior squads of both players? Are you involved with underage? Are you linking in with other coaches? How does that actually look? And how many, I suppose, how many people are you responsible for in both setups, roughly? Yeah, so within, I'll start with Leinster. Initially, it was academy, sub-academy, academy, and then senior. Uh, there's 45 athletes, uh, senior athletes. Uh, there's 20 in the academy, and then there would be another 10, 15 in, in the sub-academy. That changed after about three years. So I was in Leinster for n- nearly 10 years. Um, at the end, sorry, after about three years, there was an academy, part-time academy nutritionist uh, came on board to help out with the the academy role. With Dublin, uh, it was usually the senior squads and that over the course of the years between 35 and 40. And then I suppose a question you have asked that's really important is that when you're a backroom team member, a lot of your time, at, at least 50% of your time is spent communicating with other backroom team members. Like you are very much connected as a backroom team. You are a team. It's not like you're not working in isolation. So if an athlete is injured, an athlete is a priority, you've got every element around, like every pillar is around that athlete. You've got your physiotherapist, you've got your S&C coach, your strength and conditioning coach, you've got your your medic, the doctor might be there. Uh, if he's a forward, you have the forward coach. You know, you're putting every pillar around that athlete in order to facilitate their whatever that goal is mm. um, if they're injured or if they're identifying a specific goal that they're working on. Now that we're talking about you're asking about the difference I think ultimately time and structure and process can be far more streamlined if you're in work at half seven in the morning and then there's other people who are in since five o'clock in the morning but if you're in there from from then till four o'clock it allows you to put those type of meetings Get in you, place yeah. consistently yeah. that's kind of what I'm talking mm. about but that creates an intensity mm. you know and that that ultimately that's what drives a constant improvement okay and um with both scenarios you're working with the players, I'm sure, on an individual basis. I'm sure there's some sort of group work that you do with the guys as well. And then, as you said, then a lot of time is spent working with the backroom staff. In terms of match days and going, obviously Leinster travel all over Europe, depending on, on the competition they're playing in and then Dublin be all over the country. Would you travel with the teams? Would you do some of that as well? Or are you generally kind of, I'd say office-based in, in inverted commas here, but you, would you have done much travel with the teams along the way? Yeah, I traveled everywhere with Dublin and I definitely identified that on the road there was opportunities to just make sure the little things were covered and that the right liquid was in the right bottle and the right things were on the fuel table and all of those things. Like even, I, I've I've talked an awful lot about even identifying the Marishka, like the, the water boy position as a major opportunity for <clears throat> making sure that the athletes were were hydrating well and and picking up little things like the distances that, you know, the intensities that they were covering and little, like it's unbelievable mm-hmm. when you're at a match, just how much more that you can absorb. Just even seeing the behaviours of the, of the sub, of the substitutes and how they were warming up, were they hydrating, what was happening at half time. So there's an awful lot in it. Like there really is an awful lot. It doesn't strike me like you were doing two, two 20 hour jobs a week. I'm not going to be honest there. No, no. <laughs> and, and no, at one stage, one stage I would have said that I was doing somewhere between 80 and 90 hours 
uh, comfortably. Yeah. But when you're totally, I don't like the word obsessed, but I was totally obsessed with my jobs uh, and loved it. Leinster was very different. Uh, I was part-time in there, which meant if I was traveling, I was on a 20-hour contract. If I was traveling across Europe and across England, I wouldn't have been able to do my job at Dublin. Mm. Um, it's not that the, the role wasn't needed, but uh, long before that I was there, there was a lot of processes put in place for a game day and you've got your kit man that's setting up the room and and so it was it was very different. Now uh, there's a there's a guy in there on Hickey and he's traveling with the team and he's doing that but it's a it's a full it's evolved into a full-time role and that was one of the key things that we knew needed to change. Okay. Are you linking in with say like hotels and restaurants and All stuff? The time. Yeah. I remember seeing a really interesting one before. I think Liverpool came over to play friendly here and uh, it was a guy who uh, trains with me. His brother's involved in one of the hotels and I got to see the the email that mm -hmm. gets sent and the list of requirements that mm -hmm. they have to do. Like something so simple was absolutely no shellfish is allowed mm -hmm. just because of the risk. Obviously it's healthy food, but mm -hmm. it's just the risk of potential food poison that could wipe out a squad. Like there's incredible detail that goes in when I was reading it going, holy hell, this is, there's a lot in this. Like, Yeah. And it depends on whether it's a, a camp uh, or whether it's after a game uh, or if it's on the way to a game. Like the you need to have that detail to avoid any any kind of potential issues like the one thing is you have a very strict process and familiarity and clarity on what works and what's effective and what the players are comfortable with is is really important and the reality of is when it comes to food that normally there's this amazing creative license that that chefs have they they can't have that when it comes mm, to yeah. performance nutrition yeah. and it's not that it it shouldn't taste good that it absolutely should but a pasta and chicken can look very different depending on who's who's cooking it. Yeah. Uh, so it's trying to create and the communication around that and keeping that as consistent as possible is, is absolutely massively important part of it. And then the work you actually do specifically with each athlete, is it like, do you basically design a diet and they get handed their foods that they follow that it's really rigid and they don't think anything about it? Or are you giving them certain guidelines where there's calorie requirements, protein requirements that they're trying to hit on a daily basis? Or is it just trying to educate them on food groups that they kind of bring in, which is maybe a little bit more loose? I'm glad you teed up that question. Uh, actually, for people who are listening, not necessarily from a, a sports performance perspective, because it's really simple. The whole thing and the whole process is 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 really simple, and ultimately, what you're trying to do is to get people to think as much as possible about how nutrition and the foods and drinks that people consume can impact how they feel, and their energy levels and how they recover. And if you prescribe these things, and if you just have people tracking, or these foods are handed to them, they're not making those connections. No, definitely not. Yeah. And that's a big problem in the world today. Mm. People are eating out of petrol stations. They're eating, you know, whatever sandwiches are in the canteen. Uh, they're buying ready-made meals. And there was an awful lot of talk, particularly about Dublin. And I mean, I remember being down in Galway one, <laughs> one day. <laughs> and uh, I was after playing a game of golf and I was having a pint. And somebody, uh, somebody was in the bar, started talking about this delivery van that was uh, going to all of the Dublin players' houses with their meals every day. Right. And this thing went around yeah. and um, you just you just It wasn't it. true. Like it was it a, wasn't <laughs> true. I mean, the whole the whole point was that the more, the more control you have yourself over what you are eating, and that involves cooking and preparing it, the more confidence, but also 
the more confidence you have in that process, but also you know exactly what you're eating. And there's a there's a there's a whole different mindset approach to that versus somebody hands it to you. So I I really emphasize that. And even when sometimes the management were encouraging this, it, you know, that if the players didn't have to cook, they'd have more time for analysis or whatever mm. it might be, that I said, this is this is a strict part of what I believe to be very important. Mm. And it's not that players couldn't take uh, takeaways or, or have meals. It's just that if an athlete is not thinking uh, about it, then they're not in, in as much control about it. And it just, there's too much room for error. Yeah, I like it. I suppose the way I probably summarize is, are you prescribing or are you educating? You know, and I said, I can understand someone who's not educated in this field. I'll just prescribe them, give them what they need. One less thing to stress about, one less thing to worry about. And that's a simplistic view. But I said, you see the bigger picture here. And unless we educate these guys, it's just not going to work. It'll work for small periods at different times. But the, the bigger scheme here is we need to educate and empower these guys to make these decisions themselves. Yeah. And that's a series of small conversations in in corridors and when you're having coffees or on the way to the bus and are on the bus on the way to games and all of that type of thing. And don't get me wrong, it is absolutely highly strategic. And yes, we do talk about grams of protein in recovery and but not all the time. Yeah, it's, it's, it goes way beyond that. It goes way, yeah. it goes way beyond that. And I think that's, I, I'm not going off on one with the whole, whole uh, the, the tracking approach, but it's the depth of detail around what influences our food choices day to day and putting structure that works in our lives that matters, n you know, n not... Uh, if it fits our macros. Definitely. Look, we might, I'd love to get into that probably in the work you're doing currently because I think that's an absolutely fascinating subject and it's something I'm day-to-day -day banging my head against the wall off with the lads I work with and Bulletproof Dads will definitely go there. I suppose a question I'd have, just more curious as a sports fan, do when the players get on board, like, like again, I know from the, the gym, we have our WhatsApp groups and stuff like that, the lads would take make meals or share recipes and stuff like that. Like, would you have certain players that would be good like that maybe in, in either dressing room who are big into their cooking or maybe like is there kind of a collab effort amongst the players that maybe if there's a bit of buy-in would they share recipes among each other and try and support each other I had this or I had that or is it heavily individualized oh no it was uh, there was a very much a collective uh attitude that there's a value in this and there was a huge amount of fun and there was a social aspect of it and uh, what you just described was the was like one of the most fulfilling aspects is where mm you're just creating a platform for this exchange and for this experience. And nothing made me happier than seeing players going for coffee together, going for dinner together. But mostly, you know, if they did cook in each other's homes, oh, like that, that's, that, that's it. That's putting it all together. And I used to love doing that as well. Like I, I was very fortunate, uh, fortunate, unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> to live with Sean O'Brien for over three years, um, he's uh, he's an international athlete. He's a lion, and and you know he's become one of my closest friends. And he was, and to be honest, of any rugby player, he was probably one of the best athletes he involved. Was, yeah. Like he just like yeah. for the size and the shape of him, yeah, like, he's, he's incredible. The pace yeah. he had and the power he had, like he's he's beyond your average athlete. Like. Yeah, and he's beyond your average mm -hmm. person too. Because what I witnessed with him was that his mind was equally as impressive as the body that he was in. And I don't say that lightly, like his grit and his bounce back ability, the stuff that I saw he put himself through. But that wasn't the point um, I was bringing up. It was more, you know, you really start to see when you put something in front of somebody as it, like nutrition, as a concept, 
or a tool to help somebody perform and they start to see it, mm. what they're willing to do and the attention they're willing to give it, that's what I absolutely loved. You know, you start to see somebody who goes, I want to be the top of my game, I want to be in the best possible shape. Mm. I'm willing to do the work and that they could see that Chop and Peppers was part of that process. Okay, yeah. And like, that's not somebody else's job. Mm. I'm willing to do that. Yeah. Which I, is probably becoming rarer and rarer as sport gets more professional, I would imagine. Like, I can't, I could be completely wrong and we can't really talk about it, but I imagine most professional footballers in the UK, for example, I can't imagine most of them chopping peppers in the kitchen. No. I could be wrong, but it'd be very hard to see. No, and look, there's a massive range, but I know the, that I, I have uh, colleagues and friends who work uh, in the Premier League and I know a lot of them deal with chefs. And it's not even the player and there's an awful lot. You talked about the prescription aspect. It seems to be the way. Yeah. It, se it seems to be a large part of it. And uh, But there's a massive cultural difference too between rugby and GA and, and soccer. And just, I mean, look at the difference in the money. It's a different conversation. Yeah. But, yeah. Of any lads say you, you're involved with whether the rugby or the or the, the GA, who would you most like to, if someone was offering you to come over for dinner, who would you most like to cook you a meal? Was there anyone in particular that was very good at, at cooking? At cooking? Or, yeah. And you want to put really good recipes out there of all the guys. Yeah, in Leinster, Reese Ruddock uh, was phenomenal. Like he was a guy who was so centered as a as a person as well. Like, you know, I I there, there was large periods of frustration as well with um yeah. <laughs> players would be very quick to tell you if they didn't like something. <laughs> You know, and I worked really hard to try and keep things fresh and in menus and things like that. But like, you'd get as much negative feedback yeah. as as as. And that can be hard to take when you're yeah. all in on something and yeah. pouring your heart into something. Yeah, it is yeah. tough to take. No, no, it is. And yeah. like, sometimes things would happen where there'd be logistical things that would happen around ordering and menus and the wrong food turning up, and it wouldn't be your fault at all. But like, you're the food guy, so you got it. <laughs> but anyway, Reese was that guy who. He just seemed so measured and like, if you wanted to have the crack, you could have the crack, but when you wanted to dial it in, you could dial it in. And, you know, he was one of these people who can make extremely impressive meals and salads and things like that. But the amazing thing when you ask that question is that they can all do it. They can all do it, but it's the kind of the real interest in, in making something very creative. Mm. That that's a different type of question. Um, and then they get a little bit competitive about it too. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 they most definitely do. And there's an excitement. But I loved that. I loved watching. I loved watching that evolution. Um, Paul Mannion, of course, is a guy who very, very, um, very professional in the way that he always approached his his preparation but he moved more towards a, a plant-based uh, nutrition approach and was vegan for quite some time I actually did a, a case study on him as part of my my studies and that was fascinating because when you move towards a predominantly plant-based approach you have to be an excellent cook mm. to make the vegetables and proteins taste really good because were, were you involved were you working with him at the time were yeah you involved can I ask you, like, were you supportive of that decision? Were you, did you try to talk him out of it? Or? <laughs> I absolutely tried to talk him yeah. out of it. Absolutely. And that only added, he <laughs> went fucking bananas. More. He was like, I'll show you, I'll prove you wrong. And, um, 
But that's not an unusual thing to happen when you yeah. challenge an athlete. Okay, yeah. They will try and prove you wrong. Yeah. And by God, like some of the stats that he came back with, like we measured all of his stats that year. And we looked at it more closely, but he knew we were looking at it more closely. So he put more effort this into his preparation. This is the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there, is there, there's more to it than just the one thing going oh, of on? There yeah, of course there is. Of course there is. But he, it's not that he didn't make mistakes. Like he, he made, he did make certain mistakes and it's harder to meet all those nutrition needs. And you, as particularly as an athlete, you mm. rely more on supplementation. Mm. But a credit to him. What, like supplementation wise, would he be looking at? Was it like pea protein shakes or plant based? Like, yeah. 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 Uh, so you really have to go after things like, um, obviously, B12, uh, even even things like zinc and magnesium, you got to look at a little bit closer. Uh, omega three, I don't know if I mentioned, but that that's important. And then the obvious one for him was that he he did need to supplement uh, with protein. He was using an awful lot of, pardon me, he was using an awful lot of things like uh, pulses and beans and lentils, which which have a huge amount of fiber, which can cause more yeah. bloating and digestive issues. Which is not what you want, particularly pre-game. As a and exactly what what happened at times. Um, so those are, the, those are the type of things that we need to manage. How are you? Just a quick reminder that this podcast is sponsored by M50 Skips. So if you're doing a spring clean at home at the moment, make sure you give them a shout. They're a local business based in Santry. Give them a shout, mention the Bulletproof Dad podcast and they'll give you a 10% discount on your next skip hire. Cool. So... Like for me, this is a lovely story in the sense that like you went, you got your qualification, pursued your passion, you had to do your your hard time of getting getting to where you want to get to get the dream job, the dream jobs that you did, working with these incredible athletes and having fantastic success in both, like two of the most successful sporting teams around for both. Like it's incredible to be part of that. When did the decision come for you that right? It's now time to take the next step, come away from all this and actually go out on my own and start my own thing. Well, because to me, as someone who studied this and is really into this, you, you were at the top of the ladder, you know, and then it's like, maybe, I don't know, you, you, the, the logical things, you might have got a, a job in, in the UK, talking, maybe talking professional mm. football or something like that, where it's just, it's, it's a higher salary or something like that, because there's more money involved. And look, that's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I thought, I, when I started out and I thought, I, you, you know, it's not that you don't think about these things, you just don't really want to think about them and... I can't tell you, like right up until the last day that I left both of those roles, they were everything that I could have wanted. I absolutely loved my jobs. But there's a really important question that I continually asked myself, and that is, who do I want to be? And what do I want to do with my life? And how do I, you know, what do I want to achieve? And a couple of times at different stages, you know, you see things change and, you know, the environment changes and then being, let's say, let's being brutally honest as well. When you're in an environment for a prolonged period of time. How long were you there? Sorry, just as. Uh, nine, almost nine years with, with uh, Dublin and then uh, nearly 10 years uh, with uh, Leinster. That's a long time in professional sport. Yeah. It mightn't sound that long in other careers, but like yeah. think about it. There's definitely turnover, a few managers in there and, and yeah. staff and Joe a lot Schmitt. of players. Yeah, Joe Schmidt was there when I when I started, and uh, Leon Stewart when I left. Um, but I only, you know, I worked with the uh, with the uh, predominantly worked with Jim Gavin in Dublin, and then just uh, Desi for for one season. But I, 
No, I think I, I, I want to go back to the point that maybe isn't talked about an awful lot, and that is that no matter how good you are, no matter who you are, there is a little bit of fatigue that will set in and your voice starts to lose that little bit of effect. And, you know, I can talk an awful lot about it was the right time for me to move on, but there's also the reality that everybody has their time. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter matter who you are. And uh, Jurgen Klopp is probably a very good relevant example at the moment. He's obviously said he's he's just, he's tired. Eight years at the top, he's he's done now. He's taking a break when he's still achieving massive success. It's going yeah. to be by surprise. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I think that a big part of it as well is I I constantly challenge myself. And uh, you can't, I wanted to run my own business. And I want, I felt like there was something there that I wanted to do, that I wanted to achieve, that I wanted to feel completely autonomous in how I delivered a message. And if you're involved in elite sport, you can't do that mm. completely. So it was, uh, it was, there's a gut instinct and then there's those hard questions that you ask yourself uh, and then you move on. Yeah. And can you remember when you announced or whatever the best way to describe it is that you were going to leave the roles. Can you remember what the initial feedback was? Maybe particularly from close friends and family were they surprised? Well, Dublin was a little bit different. Um, I like, uh, just I suppose to say um, that the, there was a change in the guard there <clears throat> and Desi was freshening things up and that was a different type of conversation that I had. Like he is, he was asking me about my time commitment and was I able to give more and the reality of it was that I wasn't. Mm. So it was, you know, he had a decision to make. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that was, that was, that was a challenging enough sort of conversation. Mm. I actually haven't talked about this before, <laughs> but, um, and I have absolutely no problem uh, talking about it, but that was the type of conversation we need more because we have just been beaten. I'm not able to deliver more. And that's kind of, well, that answers that. Yeah, exactly. There's, <coughs> nothing, there's nothing else to really be said There's nothing there, really yeah. else to be said. Uh, Dublin, <clears throat> so that was Dublin. And then Leinster was, is different. Like I, I went in and I, I spoke to them and I just said, I feel like t this is the right time, but I'm going to do everything I possibly can to put really good succession planning in place and the right person coming back in. I feel like that has been so positive as a, you know, my connection there is still so strong and um, I just love that because you don't get that opportunity to do that very often. How long know? was that notice or succession period? Six months. Okay, yes, there's a lot of work going in yeah. there. Yeah, no, there was and there was a lot of change in that time period and I would have asked athletes that I would have a lot of respect for and, you know, I would consider friends help me make the absolute most of this last period so I can do the best I can. So that was really positive. Um, <clears throat> the friends question and the, the, the family uh, question is, is, is a little bit different. The, the support was absolutely there and I probably was talking about it for quite some time, but everybody knew how hard it was going to be to make that final move when they knew how much I loved those positions. Mm -hmm. But when when they know me and they know I want to do other things and I want to achieve different things and there's, you know, I've I've written recipe books and there's other challenges I want to I want to establish that that's that's that. But I actually did before I left the position. I'm not going to lie. There were the thoughts 
would I be taken as seriously or would people have enough, would have the same respect for me because I'm not in those roles Without anymore. Without the association. Without those the associations. Brand, the big, you, yeah. you know, the big associations with the, well, I don't talk to Johnny Sexton every day anymore or I'm not talking to Karen Kilkenny and Brian Fenton anymore. And like, do people still, or do people still value my opinion? But ultimately what you got to do is make the right call for you in your own head and what you're trying to achieve. And you kind of keep going back to that self-talk. And you, your father as well. So you've like you've two young children. Mm. Were oh, they, that was a massive. Part like, are of they? It, were yeah. they? Had you both children born at this stage when you decided to do this? Or one little girl at that point. Yeah. So like you say, it's a big thing for you, but there is a whole other layer to this as well. Like you're leaving a secure income mm. that you're quite good at and have like you've a lot of status with it as well. It's not just your average job, and you're leaving that. And I said like you have to think about your. It's not just you anymore. You have to. You mm-hmm. have a whole family to look think about here as mm-hmm. well. So it's a huge call to make, and that's just what I want to talk about it because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people probably wouldn't have had the guts to do it. But obviously, you you felt something within your gut that said, "No, this is the right time to do it." And I'm just kind of wondering, like, it, it was it as straightforward as that, or was it like the the these little questions you had, which I think are just perfectly normal, yeah, because you're kind of leaving. You're leaving a certain role to an extent going out into the uncertain. Mm. And something I'm conscious of here as well, like you go out and you're all like, I'm self-employed now 12 years. So I'm, I, I, I probably still have the same thought every day. Jeez, I should probably just jack this in and get a normal job. It'd be a lot less easier. It probably crosses my mind at least once a day, probably 10 times a day if I'm honest. But there's obviously something there that keeps pulling you back in. But I'm conscious with you. I, I'm kind of numb to a lot of it now because I've been doing it and I've, I've been able to take a, a team on the last couple of years. But you've literally gone from a huge extreme of part of these massive teams to then step out on your own like was there a time a couple of weeks in after you kind of took the step where you're like like i'd imagine you're leaving whatsapp groups for example that were maybe the most important whatsapp group you were probably in bar your family one for the last decade Mm -hmm. or so was there a time where you're like going like when it felt real you know like after you maybe took the step a couple of weeks later you're like shit i'm on my own here Mm. was there any sort of landing like that or did it kind of feel I'm having a bit of an outer body experience right now as you're asking the question because I think what you do is you you have to just commit because they're such big decisions mm. you you say what you need to say and then you 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 move on and I think as you're asking it and I was processing the questions and I was thinking about that those emotions I think it was probably six months after I'd left mm. because initially, I mean, I mean, I don't mean to compare it to to death or something, but you know, there's that kind of post-traumatic type of feeling of 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 loss. The initial part of it, I was definitely really well prepared for. We were talking about six months, particularly with Leinster, where I had that that the the long goodbye yeah. kind of thing. With with with, with it's about six months pass and uh, you're extremely busy, totally focused on making the next thing work mm. and trying to figure shit out. And then there was a period I can really distinctly m- remember ar- around Christmas time where I felt like there was this massive hole you know, there's something really missing here that I need to fill. Mm. This would have been just over a year ago. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. about six months after I finished and I had a good bit of processing to do. And what I actually decided, because I kept thinking, this is, again, this has been really honest. Like I kept thinking, I've been in those roles for this long. 
surely the world will be interested in me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, even the fact that now that uh, I'm not in those roles, you know, surely there are some teams that might be interested in my experience. Yeah. Nobody called. Okay, yeah. You know, yeah. there's like people would say, you know, I'm sure you're inundated now. I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, not one, you know. Yeah. The, there's people will call, mm. don't get me wrong, to do team talks and you might, you know, do corporate talk. Gigs and as like opposed that. to, gigs, yeah. Gig, yeah. yeah. To roles. And uh, that showed me an awful lot about just, I suppose, where the reality of where I was at now and uh, there is nobody else going to come call. So I made a big, I made a big call uh, in my head and this was really important. <laughs> this was pivotal, like really, really, really important. I decided to let all of that go and I decided to just commit my time to exploring areas that really interest me and that excited me in 2023. So I decided to kind of take the pressure off all of that stuff, like, because you're always asked, what's the next thing or mm. who's it going to be? And just decide to leave all that to one side. And some absolutely amazing things, like absolutely incredible things happened for me in, in, in 2023. And I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean commercially or I don't mean, oh, would you believe like this person called Rory McIlroy was ringing or I don't mean anything like that. It was more about my clarity. What were the areas you decided to pursue? What, what were the real interesting areas that you wanted to double down on for 2023 so that maybe you didn't get the chance to when you were involved in the team sport? I'm fascinated about people's journey and mindset uh, and, and how they approach things. And what I wanted to do is to put a really good pathway together for people to achieve goals. Uh, it doesn't matter what that goal is, it, but it's in the in the space of health and performance. And we spend hours and hours and hours uh, talking about what that would look like and what that would feel like. And we came up with a philosophy with, you know, with key elements in it, understanding who you are, where you are, what you want to achieve, then creating a winning game plan, reflecting on that game plan, building your community, building that clarity and confidence. And that's actually what the outcome started to really listen to the people we were working with. And we started to realize that what differentiates us as a team and, and, uh, as, a, as professionals is that we help people with that clarity and confidence. That's there, the words we started hearing back. So I suppose one of the key moments that happened in, in 2023 was I decided to take, um, a big leap and do a, a public talk uh, in Dublin, uh, in Entapped in last April. Uh, it's a, it's a, just a little, like just the old, um, oh, it's gone out of my head now. Then old nightclub is closed down. It's, it's, it's tapped as the place. Oh, what the hell was it? It'll come back to me. Whereabouts in Dublin was it? Uh, at the bottom of, um, Oh, the old lilies. The okay. old lily oh, yeah, hotels. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's upstairs. Like A few lads nodding their head listening to this podcast yeah, yeah, going, yeah. oh yeah, remember that place? So upstairs in the old lilies. And the whole thing was about finding a higher path, finding, you know, asking questions about who you were. And and uh, it was definitely not about yogurt and protein. And, <laughs> and it was this kind of concept and introducing it to the world. And I found it really hard to sell tickets. Like it was really tough to sell tickets. Sold maybe 40 tickets and I was delighted some friends came. 
And I remember starting to introduce this, you know, the, the, my team were at the top and we started introducing this concept about looking at things differently and this type of exploratory questioning of, of, of who you were and, and, and in identity and looking at identity because it was the big thing for me. Like it was the big thing that changed was I started to think about who I was and who I wanted to be and I could see the heads dropping. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I have done so many public speaking roles. Yeah. This is the first time I was taking this massive leap. And the little, you know, the voices in your head is like, it's okay. You know, you can talk about eggs. You can talk about how many eggs you can yeah. eat today. You know, yeah. it's, you, you've got the safety net. Yeah. And I got through the first hour and like, oh, I was, you know, the sweats. And Was this just in your head or could you feel the vibe in the room? I felt both. Yeah. Because people came there thinking this is Daniel Davy who laughs and jokes about making smoothies and, okay, you know. Yeah. And I've felt a bit of like, you know, I, I was asking questions of the audience as well and it was it was tough going. Mm. And then I got to half, I got through to the, to, to the halfway point and took a bit of a break and talked to the team. And it was that kind of, it was one of those moments. And I, like, I mean it very sincerely. It really was. It's like, are we actually going for this now? Mm. Are we actually going to commit to this or are we, are we just going to go keep doing what we're doing? You know, go back to the, <laughs> the idea of protein distribution. And I said, fuck, let's just, let's go for it. And I went for it, started again, but I started like with a completely different energy. Yeah, you went after it. I yeah. went after yeah. it. And I just, uh, I remember finishing the evening thanking everybody and just this unbelievable relief and everybody was leaving and uh, this man came up to me and he said um, you're onto something here mm. he said I reckon you're probably somewhere between 10 and 20 years ahead in terms of what people are comfortable with or used well, to be yeah. he says I think you're onto something mm. he said here's my card he said I own a corporate business with, um, with a franchise and he said I'd love to talk Fantastic, yeah. I had three conversations with him and uh, following on from that, um, built a high performance program that I'm still currently delivering. Cool, mm. cool. Just to come back on that, I think the word that's screaming out to me here is values and you're mm. quite clear in your values. And I just, I actually read a really good quote on values things yesterday about in business, we talk about values all the time, but what does it actually mean? Mm. And I heard a great summary. It's like, it's, it's what you're willing to turn money down for. Mm. It's a great summary if you kind of break it down. Yeah. So yeah, these are my values, but then you'll often hear people say, this is what I'm about. But then you get the, the you could have gone in there and been the people pleaser and done the egg thing and the protein thing. People would have got what they wanted and gone off. And then you'd probably get good feedback. You do another seminar. I know it's a, it's a good, it becomes a, an, a good revenue stream for you. But like that, it's not the fulfilling thing mm. that you've you've let you've left that behind. You need to go after this now because I said this. I said there's there's definitely something in there that's made you leave these incredible roles that you've worked so hard to get to. And I think this is a really poignant moment. I just love how you summarize that there. And it's great that there's a good lesson there for me that you're true to your values and someone is actually there to support you. And like obviously that never would have happened if you played it safe. So there's a big leap of faith with that as well, which I think is pretty cool. So 
to talk about that program now, can we just go into a little bit more detail? Because maybe some of our listeners here mm. might be guilty of the same thing. I think, and oh, Daniel, they be on a podcast to listen now, find out now. He might have a few tips on protein or the perfect smoothie. Can we go and talk a little bit more about this work? Because maybe mm. some people are hearing this for the first time. Like, what mm. is it, the sort of work that you're doing? The, the, if you're tapping into people's values and their vision, how does that actually look or break down? Yeah. Uh... Well, I suppose uh, it starts by beginning to understand uh, initially the person, you know, and, and what they're looking to achieve. And very often when people come to work with, with me, it's like you asked the question, they'll either have heard something, you know, that, that triggered um, a thought on, on Instagram or that I've been associated with the, the, the sports teams. I think I'll kind of go back to something that I begin to recognize once I left Dublin and Leinster that became very apparent. And that is that when you're within really highly successful environments, there's a very clear vision. Mm. I mean, it's so clear what you're working towards. And it isn't, it goes beyond, and this is the real beauty of it. It goes so far beyond just what happens at the end of the season and the the cups that you have and the All Irelands that you have. There's a there's a greater sense of purpose, and I know this is talked about an awful lot, but I felt that mm. I felt what it what it's like to be a part of, you know, inspiring the youth of or the future, but also connection to the past and what was gone before. I was a part of that all the time. Anyway, I'm, I'm, you know, I leave Leinster, I leave Dublin, and I started to realize, geez, people are not connected to anything. Mm. People come with a goal of reducing body fat or building muscle or, you know, completing a marathon in a better time. Mm. They don't really think about a vision for, for their overall life. And yeah. that is what I do. Like mm. the whole thing is, how do you live your life day to day for better health and performance? But who are you going to be at 60 or 70 or 80 and work back from that? Mm. Because if you put a process in place that allows you to live a really high performing life, then the marathons and the body composition goals, and the high rocks and all of those, they're just little points along the way. Mm. And people don't think about those things. And they also do not think about what's driving their decisions. Mm. So very often stress and frustration and very sadly I see a lot of this loneliness mm. is driving an awful lot of people's bad habit bad habits when you start to peel the airs back people start to realize holy shit it's nothing to do with you know the takeaway at the weekend yeah. it's nothing to do with mm. it it's actually how how I'm feeling mm. if there's a deep there's something missing and, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but no amount of protein is filling that feeling. Definitely. Yeah. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. And like, I, I, I just, I'm kind of smiling listening to this is like, it's like, Jesus Christ, I just came to this fella to find out what calories and protein I should be having for my marathon training. And then you're coming back with this questionnaire. Like I'm sure there's, I, I can imagine you cause of your background, that's probably the best way to describe it, that I would associate you working with a high performing athlete. So if I consider myself a high performing athlete, I'm coming to you and I want that little extra mm. bit, that thing. Mm. So I'm probably 
in a hurry, in a rush to yeah. get where I want to get. And I want that next little piece of the jigsaw. So I'd imagine you can get a lot of pushback with that and maybe initial frustration because people are looking for the, the quick and dirty tip that's going to get them there. And you're coming back, rather than coming back with an answer straight away, it's essentially a flood of questions that has taken them away from that narrow mindset to open their mind and see what they want. So that is incredibly challenging, I would imagine. Yeah, it, yeah. Is. It's, uh, it is. It's really, really challenging. But, you know, when you when you have people coming back telling you that this whole process has changed their lives, uh, changed their relationships with their family members, with their partners. Uh, I have people who've changed careers mm. off the back of the questions because they realize that the source of unhappiness is, you know, who they're spending time with during yeah, the day. Definitely. Things begin to, to, to really change and, you know, I have some really, really sad stories too, where people come to you looking to better understand how to get more, more out of their training and how to reduce their body fat. And you ask them some of these questions about who they want to be and they're really emotional and they turn around to you and you're saying, you're, you're asking me to answer the toughest question that, you know, I'm not willing to ask myself. And I turn back to them and say, unless you're willing to answer those questions, you're never going to be happy. Mm. You're never going to actually feel how you want to feel because all of these little things are, are connected and your system will feel that. Your energy, your mindset, all of these things are connected. And I suppose that's <clears throat> the real confidence that I've got. And what puts me in a really unique position is that I've seen how when these things are connected, when you have people's minds in the right place, when you see people's nutrition, day-to-day -day practices, their sleep is in a really good place. So all of these little things are very, very clearly aligned and that there's, you know, that there's a real sense of, of, of calm and clarity. And, but, but like I come, you'd mentioned fun, that people are enjoying it. Yeah. Because it's actually... Then, then then, the music happens. Mm. I speak to a lot of personal, like I said, in terms of personal trainers, I'd be of the more golden generation now because I'm 12 or 13 years doing it. Most people do it for a few years and then tend to disappear with the industry. It, it tends to eat a lot of people up. So I speak to younger personal trainers and um, like trying to explain to them like the work you're trying to do with people. And it's, it's how you learn over time because mm. again, you're all in at the start. Oh, it's about like most clients come for a weight loss goal or a body composition mm. goal. And I suppose what I've found over the years is, and this would really back up what you're saying there, is I find clients at the start can be very good and do really well because they're often in a position of discomfort or unhappiness. So their initial goal is to get away from something. So they want to get away from that feeling or that, that look, whatever it is. And they'll get to a certain point where they're kind of happy. And then it's kind of, they've gotten away from, they've wanted to get away from. And now the next step is, okay, I want to do this. I want to go to this. I want to get my body fat to this level. I want to be able to do this. And they never really can take the next step. They tend to kind of hover in the, in the middle because realistically, if we break it down, they don't have a clear reason why I'm going to do this because it's, it's the next thing I should do, or I should probably go for this or do that. But there's no absolute clarity or real vision as to what they're doing. So they tend to kind of float between this area of happy enough to an extent versus 
re- really unhappy and then they might slip back a little bit and then they see where that they're going back to where they were and they'll transition and they tend to going to be stuck in this limbo. That's just something I've found now. I'm yeah. doing this a long time. Yes. So client, they can be great clients yes. because they, they can get away from where they want to get to and it makes a great transformation and a really good story. But the best clients I find are lads who have a bigger vision mm. and it's actually, they train because they want to just be feeling good or performing at a high level. Mm. They they link training and good sleep and good nutrition with their work performance, with how they are at home, how they manage stress, how they are as a person. And when you can join all those dots, you've won. Whether you're fucking 10% body fat or 20% body fat, that's what I find. But so many people struggle to join those dots. And that's why the question around values are so important. Yeah. And that's why it's, you know, I, <clears throat> I wouldn't have had a clue yet. You mentioned values to me when I was in my 20s. I wouldn't I was like, what the hell are you talking about? But as you go on, you start to understand the depth behind a value, if sleep is a value, or if, you know, living a healthy lifestyle at home is, is a value. But uh, what I what I find is really, really interesting about the whole value concept is that like, I would have found myself in, my, in, in our business that you have to engage your values all the time to reach the standards that you're looking to try and achieve or to evolve. So like I can feel, so if it, our whole approach is science informed or evidence based, like there's a really strong scientific basis. But if we're not engaging in the conversation on science, if we're not sharing papers, that that slips and it slips all the way through in our messaging. Mm. So you, you, you got to be so good at maintaining the engagement in your values or some aspect of its slips. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And with the team you have now, like what way does the, the, the team look? Have you many staff members with you? Like how have you built up since, since starting the business? Yeah, there's been a little bit uh, <clears throat> of a phenomenal team. Absolutely. Let me start with that. Absolutely phenomenal team. And uh, uh, Gemma is a brilliant performance nutritionist and professional soccer player over in Bournemouth. Eva. Uh, crossfitter, brilliant performance dietitian. Um, Aoife is uh, she's interning, but also doing some really important work. And then I have books you for podcasts. Yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah, all of those type of things. So I have um, a, a young team of interns, and then Casper is on on the IT. And then uh, I can't forget saying, you know, my wife does um, uh, gives me a lot of support as well. But my big challenge. And anybody who's in this kind of uh, early entrepreneurial state or small business stage will identify with me when, like, I don't want to be a stepping stone. Mm. But unfortunately, a lot of absolutely great practitioners have come through. I know what you mean, yeah. yeah. And yeah. moved on to, yeah. to roles where... You're trying to build a team. trying to build it's a tough. team. Yeah, it's, it's really, really tough. Really tough. Yeah. And, like, ultimately, like, they could any one of my team could be snapped up and I can't compete with some, you know, Leinster comes looking for one of my team. I can't stop that. I know, you know. what you mean. Yeah. 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 It's tough. All right. Going back, looking at it now, we're what, eight, you're nearly well, 18 months, two years into the, the journey. Uh, so in come July, uh, June, July, I'll be two years. Cool. When you talk about digging into the values of the, the when you're working with your, your current clients now, is there any recurring themes you're seeing with people? Like obviously it's very individual, it's based on the individual, it's very specific to each person, but is there certain patterns you're seeing? Like you mentioned there, a lot of people might be struck, like loneliness is one I was not expecting you to say, being mm-hmm. honest with you, but is there certain things that you're seeing in general that there's certain patterns that maybe have stood out for you or surprised, surprised you since going down this journey? Well, I think what, 
what I've recognized myself is that you get a little bit older and different people begin to identify with you. So like an, an absolute consistent pattern is people's responsibility to their children. Uh, so I have an awful lot of parents, an awful lot of parents engaging with me, parents engaging with me, wanting to be better for their kids and understand more about their 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 children's nutrition and have have better uh, practices in their homes. But the loneliness part that I'm talking about is there's, I think it's way too easy to just blame COVID. I think it's way bigger than that. Mm. I think the digital era is the 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 initially those people are just talking about this perfect lifestyle being presented on on social media i think it's even more than that i think people are spending so much time engaged now on their phones and in media in general and not as connected to people uh, who really care about them mm. uh, that that there's something there's that feeling of something being missing in an awful lot of people's lives so uh, I suppose when we did, uh, <clears throat> what I'm referring to here is like, we did our event in Portugal last year. This concept is like a mini camp where we could do these nutrition sessions and uh, there's exercise, there's mindset, there's, there's sleep education. But what actually emerged out of it was people actually realized that this was one of the first times that they were surrounded by people with the same mindset and care and wanted them to win, mm. wanted them to really succeed. And I can actually, I mean, even when I'm talking about it now, there's, there are times where I feel lonely. Mm. Like I, uh, it's, it's on your own business is an incredibly lonely journey at times. Like, yeah. it is, like any entrepreneur will probably say, tell you that, like even I, ones with big teams as well. Yeah, I would actually go and say that even on, I, I, like I have an amazing family and I have great friends, but what has happened, maybe people would, maybe my friends would actually be critical of me now if, if I think about it, maybe they would say, well, you need to engage us more. Mm. But I have really found, uh, and I think this happens with a lot of people with young families and running their own businesses, that all you do is, is try to be as good a parent as you possibly can and work. There's not much time left for There's not yeah. much time left for anybody. So what I have seen a lot of people coming to me now wanted to reinvest in themselves mm. and trying to figure out how to do that effectively. Yeah, and I think like the age bracket we are as well, like we'd be similar age demographic as well. I think a lot of things you have in common with your friends when you're younger and you spend a lot of time together, you don't have the time or energy to be doing that anymore as well. So that can kind of cut ties as well. It's quite tough, like often... It's funny, like I talk to some mates, like just it could be a WhatsApp over and back, and it's like it's like when's the next wedding or the next stag or so. I'll see you at that, and all oh, there's no one actually going. Geez, maybe we should try it. Or it's a kids' party, you know, like it's yeah. it's a big event now. Where it's yeah. kind of bringing people together, yeah. if even. And it's um, yeah, it is. It's a strange because again, you grow up with your your crew if you mm. like, and then I said it, it's a, it's an interesting journey. Have you? Um, how do you strike that balance? Would be kind of my final question on you because I think it's a really important theme of the podcast. How do you try to strike that balance between being the present dad at home, but also being the businessman who can provide for his family as well? Because I think that's the thing 
I struggle with most. I absolutely agree with you. At times I can be a poor friend or not as present as I probably should be to some of my friends because you're so engaged in what you're doing. You can't, unfortunately, can't be all things to everybody. But as you said, fatherhood and running your own business come up will always probably be top of the pile. How do you balance those two? I'm working on it. Uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that um, I am absolutely happy with the type of way that, um, like, there's there's things that you will do really well. <clears throat> there's things that I will do really well. I am really proud of the fact that I try to cook and to prepare meals mm. with my 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 three year old. And that, that that's a really important aspect of how we engage. Mm. I pick her up from crash, um, um, which I'm already conscious of. Um, I pick her up from crash. I'm going straight after this. Yeah, as well. <laughs> me, yeah, straight after this, I'm going to pick her up. Um, I pick my girls up from crash nearly every day, drop them to crash nearly every day. And I think the answer that I, I want to say with full commitment is that we create better and better boundaries. Mm. And I think that there's even more within the boundaries. Like I keep, when I'm, when I'm pushing somebody that I'm working with, it's about detail. Mm. So it's detail in those boundaries. So between five, so when I pick them up and when dinner is finished, uh, there's no phones, yeah. you know, that you're, I mean, it seems like such a simple thing, but it's, there's lots of parents out yeah, there. It's they're, huge. They're, the, the, another massive thing that we've introduced uh, is, um, is way less coca melon. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> There's way less cartoons. And we've moved, and it's absolutely incredible having moved back into our house after doing it up, how it's allowed us to change some very simple things and create more boundaries. So we have a Google Play. Mm. It's it's like an Alexa, but uh, we only play music on it now. Okay. Yeah. So my little girl would, she could easily watch an hour. Of cartoons. Yeah. If, and that's an hour you could get some sneaky work done, you know, and be very productive. And she's happy. I'm happy. Brilliant. She's quiet. Yeah. But what does that do? Mm. She's way more cranky. She's way more tired. She's harder to deal with. I kind of getting into the more specifics about parenting, but it's trying to do things with a lot more intent. And here's one that I've picked up really, really recently. <laughs> and this will sound so ridiculous. I know if anyone's listening, they'll go, what are you talking about? And that is, you know how much other parents will tell you to play with your children, mm. right? I hate playing fucking dolls <laughs> with my children. I hate it. But I have found things that I can play with. So it was torturous for me, yeah. right? And I used to hate it and I wouldn't be engaged. I appreciate your honesty here because, you yeah. know, like, no one would be that honest. To no, say no, it was, yeah. fuck, I, I have no interest in playing dollhouse. Yeah. But I have found little games that I can't believe I love now. So, like, there's uh, uh, cups and bricks and things like that that now I will spend the first 10 minutes of the game building up with my little girl. And then it's like, now let's knock it down, yeah. you know. And it's like, let's get the balls, let's line up. And she loves it, but she loves it because how engaged I'm in it yeah. as well. So it sounds like such a simple thing, but actually finding the game that you enjoy as yeah, well yeah. as them yeah. to to play with them. Yeah. So there's a, there's little bits and pieces in there, but they need air, they need good food, they need your engagement and your attention. And look, I will get phone calls and emails and my phone will 
I turn the notifications off as best I can and create those boundaries. No, it's a great answer. I appreciate that. And the reason I'm asking is because I'm actually, like that's as much of me looking for advice myself as, as a fellow entrepreneur with two young kids as well who struggles with this on a day-to-day basis that it's something that keeps me awake at night. And I mm. think it's what a, a big theme of the podcast that we're trying to do. And I think it's, I don't think we'll ever fully crack it, but there's always these little things that help. I know something so simple for me is just taking the kids swimming because like that, the phone is in the, the locker. And uh, you kind of have to watch them. Because yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, a high yeah. danger environment yeah, as well. Yeah. But there's lovely connections there because it's just yeah. y- you're there with them. Yeah. I don't even, I'm not even a good swimmer myself. I really like swimming, but just getting in the water with them is just something <clears> I love. And it's it's, yeah. it's trying to create those environments. And I think, like yourself, if you do some work from home, mm. but which we all kind of do because mm. we've iPhones and we've, mm. we've laptops at home and stuff like that, it's very hard to create those boundaries. It really yeah, is. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But look, hopefully that is of some sort of uh, a solace or peace of mind for any fellow entrepreneurs or lads who struggle for that balance or fathers as well they're listening yeah I, I, I'm working with a couple of people who very recently said to me um, they gave me the feedback that was outside of our kind of consultation time and they said you know I've I've noticed that you're engaging um, your kids a lot more around the cooking and they said I've really started to do that more since I've seen it and I think that's a very simple one like my little girl absolutely loves helping mm. and uh, I don't know if there's many dads uh I mean, I know that the the messaging around this, uh, what, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that how involved they are in the cooking True, process yeah. at home, mm. um, they, sh- they should be actively involved, but that that's a very simple way to engage kids. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. Look, Daniel, I'm conscious of the time you've given us so much value today and I've really enjoyed this chat. I could speak to you for hours about between sports and nutrition yeah, and everything else. Appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, if you took value from it, please spread the word. Drop the link into the WhatsApp group with your friends. Share it to anybody you think will take value from it. And let's see where we can take this podcast.